This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with a credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend 1491 by Charles Mann. Mann attempts to bring fresh eyes to the Americas before European contact, and to fight the idea that the region was somehow home to simplistic or underdeveloped cultures. I'm not enough of an expert in the period to evaluate all the claims made inside the book, but I do think it's a great example of providing a counter-narrative to the dominant assessment in popular culture of the pre-Columbus Americas. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 259, The City That Never Sleeps, part 2. By 1700, Edo Japan was at its zenith, the period known as the Genroku era, the period from 1688 to 1704, is generally considered to be one of the high watermarks of Japanese culture, a time of economic growth and cultural flowering. It's also really the moment by which it was clear that Edo was Japan's premier city. The merchant houses of Osaka may have been older, Kyoto may have had a more traditional culture, but the real action was in the capital. It's also by this period that the city started to take the form we'd recognize today, starting with its division into roughly two halves, the Yamanote and the Shitamachi. Yamanote literally translates to Hand of the Mountain, and refers to the hilly areas on the western side of the city, the Musashino Plateau. The Shitamachi, roughly translated the lower city, is to the east part of the city, closer to the branches of the Sumida River. These terms still get used today, though the character of these sections, as well as their exact geographic boundaries, have shifted. Indeed, both terms are really shorthands for more of a cultural vibe than a specific geographic area. At this time, the Yamanote was more of a residence for samurai yashiki, the mansions in which lords resided during their time in Edo, which makes a lot of sense, frankly. Again, it's a reflection of the social stratification of Edo to have samurai living in the foothills literally as well as socially above their social inferiors. The Shitamachi, meanwhile, was home to the chonin, the townsmen who ran the city's businesses. That meant it was full of merchant stalls and warehouses and all that good stuff, but also home to the city's kabuki theaters, and houses of ill repute, and artists, and its midi yose, variety halls that housed acts as varied as jugglers, dancers, storytellers, and even a form of stand-up comedy called rakugo. It was really the shitamachi that gave Edo its unique cultural vibe. The Yamanote, well full of the higher-ups of Japanese society, was also home to a transient and spread-out population. The densely packed shitamachi, because remember, the samurai used up around three-quarters of the city's land on their residences, the shitamachi was responsible for the origins of a uniquely Kanto culture, expressed in things like a Kanto dialect, a distinctive art scene, which by the height of the Edo period was drawing future luminaries like Matsuo Basho 
away from the traditional bastions of culture in Kansai, and even a distinctive culinary scene. This was also the area where the attempts to reclaim land from Edo Bay took place. After all, if land is scarce thanks to all those daimyo mansions, one solution is to just make more land. A system of landfill and drainage helped fill in the shallowest parts of the bay, a process that's actually still going on today. To this day, Tokyo has added about 100 square miles of land to its area from what had previously been its harbor. Beyond these two big divisions, the city of Edo was divided into a host of smaller districts called Cho. By the zenith of the Edo period, there were some 1,700 of these in total. Each one, traditionally, ran about 120 meters across, with its own gate and guardhouses designed to keep the right kind of people in and out, for example, to keep outcast Burakumin out of upscale Chonin neighborhoods unless they needed to be there. Roughly one in every ten Cho also had a tall watchtower designed to keep an eye out for the fires that constantly plagued the city. Now, access to the city itself was in turn guarded by 36 city gates, and about 900 major intersections inside the city had what were called Tsujibanya, guardhouses for the intersections, designed to keep order in the vicinity and provide a base for patrols through the neighborhood, sort of like a very early version of a Koban police box. All told, the goal of this security system was to keep Edo a carefully calibrated showcase city, an orderly demonstration of the shogun's authority. Now, probably the most unique feature of the city of Edo was the national vibe of its character. Now, I hesitate to use that word a little bit simply because this is not really a point in history where I think you can talk about Japan as a nation in the modern sense. During the Edo period, loyalties were primarily regional, not national, and to the extent average people were aware of the shogunal government, it was more of a distant external presence far removed from the powerful regional governments. That's not to say that the Bakufu had no power, of course, merely that the power it did have over the disposition of land, the management of political relations between domains, that's the kind of power that only peripherally affected most day-to-day people. So with that caveat out of the way, Edo was unique in one major way. It brought people from the disparate domains into a single geographic space. First and most obviously, the Sankin Kotai obligations of daimyo brought samurai from all over Japan to Edo. And while in the city, they were naturally accompanied by retinues of their own men, as well as cooks, servants, and others from their native land who brought their own unique cultures to Edo. However, even beyond Sankin Kota, there was one further factor that brought large numbers of people to the city, its booming economy. Edo was constantly in need of more manpower to keep its economy moving. Longshoremen, construction workers, porters, these jobs were essential to the economic functioning of the city, all the more so considering the pre-modern nature of the economy, which meant that labor still had to be performed via human or animal muscle. And of course, where there is demand, there will inevitably be supply. From every corner of Japan, folks made their way to Edo to participate in this booming economy, especially those from the less fortunate sectors of the traditional economy. Now wait, I hear some of you saying, didn't Edo Japan have a strict system of checkpoints and passports along major roadways to prevent people from moving freely between domains as a way of stabilizing its economic and social order? Well, yes, that certainly is true, oh, listeners who are somehow reaching through time and space to ask this question. 
However, that system doesn't really serve to clamp down on this phenomenon for a couple reasons. First and foremost, the chief concern of the Shogun's government was more the movement of samurai into and out of Edo than anything else. They were concerned with ensuring that nobody was trying to launch a palace coup against the Shogun with weapons smuggled into the city, or trying to smuggle their family, the Shogun's personal hostages, out of the city. Regular old non-samurai folks were a secondary concern. Indeed, so far as we can determine, while there were substantial regulations surrounding issuing passports for checkpoints to samurai, there weren't really many at all for commoners. More broadly, the checkpoint system actually became less strict the closer you got to Edo, a function of the Bakufu's concern mostly with the outer Tozama lords, who were thought to be potentially more dangerous. Individual domains certainly might be more scrupulous in their searching, but for the most part, it was easy to get from point A to point B if you were not a samurai, either by taking back roads, which were not as carefully guarded by checkpoints, or by paying extra fees to cross each checkpoint if you get my drift. Besides, in general, attempts to restrict the movements of large populations don't really work great. I mean, today, the People's Republic of China tries to do something similar with its registration system, designed to keep urban and rural populations relatively separate, and yet the phenomenon of rural migrant workers who ignore those regulations and go to urban areas looking for work is very well documented. Really, the checkpoint system only succeeded in stopping women from crossing into Edo. All the major Bakufu checkpoints had special rules against letting women cross, barring a few exceptional circumstances. This rule existed for two reasons. First, without women it was hard for a migratory population like Edo's laborers to put down roots. Second, samurai women traveling as commoners could go to another domain for marriage, securing a marriage alliance without the shogun's knowledge, a serious potential threat to shogunal dominance. So the influx of labor into Edo was overwhelmingly male, which helped to create a more national vibe in the city, but also created a hugely skewed gender imbalance, close to a 60-40 split between men and women. Let's just say the reason Edo had the largest licensed quarter for prostitution in the country was not just because Edo was the nation's capital. It also created a highly transient population that was constantly in flux. For example, the term Edoko, a native child of the city of Edo, was used to denote someone whose family was genuinely native to the city. The definition varied, but it usually involved several generations of the family being born and raised in Edo. Estimates as to how much of Edo's population was actually made up of Edoko vary pretty wildly, but the usual numbers are in the single-digit range, and I've seen one authoritative estimate as low as 1.25%. Now, by the late Tokugawa period, some of the sheen was starting to come off of Japan's showcase city. Partially, this was thanks to shogunal economic policies and that age-old killer of empires, currency debasement. One of the methods the Tokugawa shogunate used to control its finances during the 1700s, and in particular, to address the constant difficulties associated with massive gifts from the shogun's two lords, designed to express the shogun's power and benevolence, was to lower the precious metal content of coinage in order to print more coins. But of course, that comes with some downsides, such as lowering the value of said coins. That, in turn, put a bit of a damper on the growth of the Tokugawa economy, and led to a series of shogunal reforms designed to tighten the government's proverbial belt and stabilize the coinage. 
If your eyes are glazing over from all this economic talk, the TLDR, as the kids today say, is that the flow of cash into the city became less and less valuable, and as a result the growth of the city slowed down as well. Edo's population didn't really increase beyond 1750, and by some counts it actually started to decrease. While it retained its central role, the heady days of explosive growth during the early Tokugawa period were over. There was one other new development during this time that pulled yet more wealth out of the city economy, the rising threat from the West. In particular, the 1808 HMS Phaeton incident left a big mark on shogunal policy in relation to major cities. The Phaeton was a British warship which entered Nagasaki during the Napoleonic Wars, aiming to take Dutch hostages, the Dutch being French allies, and exchange them for provisions. The Phaeton's captain also threatened to fire on ships in the harbor if his demand for provisions was not met, all the more frightening because Nagasaki's harbor defenses were old and obsolete, and many of the harbor cannons could no longer even fire reliably. In the wake of this massively embarrassing scandal, which ended with the Phaeton departing the harbor and Nagasaki's city governor committing suicide out of shame, it was plain for all to see that the shogunate could not defend its key cities. Now, afterwards, the Bakufu ordered a massive investment in harbor and coastal defense. In the long term, these changes and decisions proved inadequate to actually defending the country from the foreign threat, chiefly because the implementation of these defenses and reforms was done on an ad hoc basis by local lords, who took the order to build defenses with highly variable levels of seriousness. However, the investment in coastal defense did have a noticeable impact on Edo, because as the capital of the shogunate, it was high on the list of her fortification. The initial plan was to develop a system of 11 coastal forts spread across Edo Bay, designed to cover the harbor from a variety of angles, to concentrate fire against any attempt by a foreign ship to breach the harbor. However, only five were actually finished by the time Commodore Perry made his way to Edo, concentrated mostly in the vicinity of the Shinagawa district to the southeast of Edo Castle. The designs for the forts were borrowed from French books on fortification, which had been brought over by the Dutch, but the weapons in the forts were woefully out of date, and budgetary constraints constantly delayed construction. So instead of being the guardians of the shogun's city, the bay fortifications became this sort of physical monument to the failures of the shogunal system, a physical representation of the shogun's inability to protect the nation from foreign barbarians. That bit of symbolism was made all the clearer when Commodore Perry, faced with a threat to his fleet from the fortifications, proceeded to sail up to them and offer the defenders a white flag, which he said they would need if they decided to try and start a fight with his warships. When the Tokugawa shogunate collapsed a short decade and a half later, Edo lost the political rationale for its position as Japan's foremost city. After all, it was the house Ieyasu had built, a city constructed afresh very specifically to identify itself with a Tokugawa vision of Japan made whole. And yet, Edo retained its preeminent position as Japan's leading city even after the fall of the Tokugawa, though it did do so with a name change. When the Meiji Emperor relocated his court to Edo, the decision was made to rename the city Tokyo. That name change was a reflection of the claims of status made by Japan's emperors. The character Kyo, Jing in Chinese, has a history of being used to denote the city in which an emperor resides. 
From the time of the Ming Dynasty 700 years ago, imperial capitals had included this character in their name, first in the dynasty's southern capital, or Nanjing, and then in its northern capital, or Beijing. Japan's emperors have claimed co-equal status with those of China for a long time, indeed more or less from the time of the inception of the imperial state in Japan. The emperors of Japan have always claimed a title, Tenno, which placed them on a co-equal level with the emperors of China, the Tianzi, and have scrupulously avoided the term king, o in Japanese, wang in Chinese, which in Chinese usage has come to mean someone lower than and subordinate to the emperor. Thus, the imperial capital of Japan was referred to first as Heian, a deliberate linguistic linkage to one of China's older imperial capitals, Chang'an, and then eventually as Kyoto, with the Kyo again being the same character as the Jing in Nanjing and Beijing. And so it was only natural that when the emperor relocated, the city he moved to would be renamed. As Beijing was the northern capital, and Nanjing the southern one, Edo would be the eastern one, or in Japanese, Tokyo. The decision to move the emperor from Kyoto to Tokyo was in many ways an obvious one. Kyoto had little governing infrastructure. It had been a sleepy town for hundreds of years, as the real center of power had drifted away. As a result, the city was just not ready to absorb a massive influx of bureaucrats and politicians. Nor was Kyoto connected to the infrastructure necessary to facilitate constant trips into and out of the city. It was too far inland to have any harbor, let alone a good one, and the Kamo River was not deep enough to facilitate regular transport. Everything would have to come in by foot, not exactly practical. Kyoto had also been very carefully insulated from any foreign influence, which, while good for preserving Japan's unique imperial essence or whatever, was not particularly useful for a new government that was going to have to try to tie itself very carefully to the West. Edo slash Tokyo, meanwhile, was, thanks to the decision of Tokugawa Yoshinobu to surrender quickly, and of Katsu Kaishu to hand over Edo to the Imperial Japanese Army without a fight, largely intact. The only part of the city subject to damage from the Boshin War was the neighborhood of Ueno, where hardline Tokugawa samurai who called themselves the Shogitai, the League for the Preservation of Righteousness, had attempted to make a stand against the new government. After brutal fighting, the Imperial Japanese Army shelled the neighborhood to crush the insurrection. Other than this damage, limited to Ueno, a Shitamachi neighborhood not really connected to the government, the city was intact and ready to accept its new overlords. The transformation of Edo into Tokyo was accompanied by a renewed boom in the city's population. Immediately after the Meiji Restoration, the city's population did crater. The end of Sankin Kotai, and eventually the end of the samurai class, meant a mass departure of both samurai and those who had come to the city to make money off of samurai. By 1873, the city's population had fallen from over 1 million to less than 600,000. However, the population then started to rebound as more and more people started to make their way to the opportunities provided by the new capital. By 1891, the city's population had more or less rebounded to its highest levels during the Edo period, and that was just the beginning. By 1909, the city's population broke the 2 million mark, the first city in Japan to do so. By 1940, it broke 6 million, thanks in part to the fact that the city's rapid growth had pushed into the surrounding municipalities, and those municipalities were eventually merged into Tokyo itself. The new geography of this expanding imperial city was, in many ways, very similar to the old one. 
The center of power was and remained Edo Castle, renamed Chioda Castle, now home to the emperor and his court. Like the prestigious Fudai Daimyo of old, the closest allies of the Tokugawa shoguns, the emperor's most elite followers, his bureaucrats, selected from the cream of the cream of society, were located very close to the imperial palace in the Kasumigaseki neighborhood. The name Kasumigaseki, by the way, or the Foggy Gate, has a somewhat unclear origin. The most prestigious ministries, like the home and foreign ministries, were actually often old daimyo yashiki from the Edo period, the old prestigious yashiki closest to the castle being repurposed for the new rulers of Japan. The foreign ministry, for example, was relocated in 1870 to the old yashiki of the Kuroda clan, a Fudai daimyo clan that had once had an income of over 500,000 koku, and which thus had a pretty choice piece of real estate and a nice mansion to go atop it. These old yashiki were eventually replaced in the 1880s with Western-style architecture, designed by a German architect contracted by the Meiji government named Wilhelm Bachmann. To the west of Kasumigaseki, in the neighborhood of Nagatacho, the institutions of representative government were established. Land was set aside in the 1880s for the national diet, but a disagreement on the architectural form of the diet building, specifically on how Japanese the building should be versus how Western, meant that the building wasn't actually finished until 1920. This neighborhood was also home to the residence of the Prime Minister, completed in 1929 and replaced in the 2000s. It's also the home of the National Diet Library, the equivalent of the Library of Congress, and, alongside the National Archives of Japan, which are located on the north side of the Chiyoda Palace grounds, a place that yours truly has spent a lot of time doing research, and wondering why, god, why am I not outside enjoying some fresh air. Speaking of the north side of the palace grounds, also on the north side was a new piece of land set aside for one of the centerpieces of the new government, Yasukuni Shrine, home to the enshrined souls of Japan's war dead. To the northwest of the palace in the Ichigaya neighborhood were the headquarters of the army and navy, both substantial bureaucracies in their own right, but geographically divorced from the civilian bureaucracies of Kasumigaseki to denote their special function in the imperial system. In each of these cases, proximity to the imperial palace was an expression of imperial sanction and approval. It was, in essence, a sort of constellation of government. The powers of the government arrayed around the imperial palace, from which they drew their sanction and their legitimacy. Incidentally, also given imperial sanction by virtue of its location, was that ultimate symbol of 19th century modernity, the train. Japan's first official rail line opened in 1872, running between Yokohama and Shiodome to the southeast of the Imperial Palace. However, by 1914, a new station was constructed in Marunouchi, inside the moat of the Imperial Palace. This was the station given the moniker Tokyo Station. All the other rail stations in Tokyo use their neighborhood names. The station's location inside the outermost grounds of the palace was, like the old daimyo yashiki of the closest Tokugawa retainers, an expression of approval by the government. To the east of the palace, meanwhile, the neighborhoods of the Shitamachi thrived. Gone were the old sumptuary regulations and checkpoints that had kept the wealth of the merchant class from being too openly flaunted. Instead, the Shitamachi was, all the more openly, the economic heart of the city. The Yamanote, meanwhile, fell from its prominence as the home of the samurai, and took on a bit more of a bohemian vibe. It was the part of Tokyo, away from the economic core, where many things were a bit cheaper, and artists, poets, and the like 
who wanted to make it big in the big city, would make their homes. By the dawn of the 20th century, Tokyo more generally was a very modern city, but also one that remained really connected to its Edo-era roots. All of this new construction was, just like the Edo period, mostly done in wood, and in most of the city, a more traditional architectural style continued to prevail. On the other hand, signs of modernity were everywhere, from the growing train system to electric lighting, managed by the Tokyo Electric Light Company, founded in 1881, and the forerunner of the modern Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO. Now, in terms of architecture, there was perhaps no more visible symbol of this national attempt to construct a modern Japan than the Rokumeikan, the Deer Cry Hall, a name ironically taken from one of the oldest classics in the East Asian tradition, the Shijing, or Classic of Poetry. One of the poems contained therein reads, With pleased sounds the deer call to one another, eating the celery of the fields. I have here admirable guests whose virtuous fame is grandly brilliant. They show the people not to be mean. The officers have in them a pattern and model. The Drokumeikan, however, had very little to do with classical East Asian poetry or the virtues of the idealized Chinese past. It was instead a Western-style entertainment hall constructed in Hibiya, a neighborhood close to the Imperial Palace, commissioned by Foreign Minister Inoue Kaoru, both to house admirable guests, foreign guests of the nation, and to host official government business. The architect commissioned to build it was named Josiah Condor. He'd already spent a few years teaching architecture in Japan, training up a new generation of famous architects, and earning a reputation as the father of Western-style architecture in Japan. The goal of the whole project was to provide a westernized space designed to impress upon foreigners the cultural attainments of the Japanese, and to push the narrative that the Meiji-era embrace of westernization proved Japan's civilized qualities compared to the rest of Asia. Its success in that role was variable. The galas at the Rokumeikan were well attended, and by all accounts, the menu, French cuisine served with menus entirely in French, was quite solid. However, not all foreigners who visited the place came away particularly impressed. The French novelist and army officer Pierre Loti, for example, compared it to a casino in a mid-tier French spa town. Japanese conservatives, meanwhile, took the building as a symbol of everything they hated about the Japanese project of westernization. It lacked any Japanese features beyond the name, and to them it personified wasteful government spending as well as unnecessary cultural obsequiousness to the West. Those conservatives eventually got their way. As the initial westernization mania of the 1870s and 1880s died down, to be replaced with a more conservative re-emphasis of traditional Japanese culture and values, the Rokumeikan began to lose some of its sheen. All of a sudden, it looked like a ridiculous attempt by the Japanese to eject their own culture in order to impress the foreigners. Eventually, the building was sold to the Japanese peerage in 1890, and for the next 51 years it was home to the Peers Club, an elite venue for elite hobnobbing, before being torn down in 1941. The Rokumeikan was the city's most visible symbol of westernization, but far from the only one. Ueno, for example, received its famous western-style public park, complete with several museums as well as Japan's first zoo, which is still operating to this day. In addition to foreign buildings and technologies, 
Tokyo also developed a small but highly visible expat community of Westerners, mostly from one of four categories. Usually Westerners living in Japan were men who were either diplomats, business people, missionaries, or yatoi gaijin, Western specialists in a given field hired to provide their expertise to the Japanese government. As the imperial era went on, this last category diminished in importance as Japan's growing university system was able to train specialists, removing the need to import them. The city also had a burgeoning community of other Asians, especially Chinese and Koreans, who made their way to Japan sometimes to study Western ideas in a somewhat familiar cultural setting, sometimes purely for economic reasons. By 1920, Japan's imperial capital had grown quite a bit from its Edo-era bones. The shogunal framework on which the city was built was still present in the basic geography, but the new government had made the city its own. Next week, we'll continue to chart the evolution of that city through two massive moments of rebirth, the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923 and the Second World War. For now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net. That's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net. Or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash history of Japan podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part three.